You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Live without a net, here today with CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, Rao Powell. Rao, welcome. Good to be here as ever, Ash. And I'm back in Little Cayman, ready to write Global Macro Investors. So I've come some peace and quiet over here. Back in the background that people confuse with a nightclub. Yeah, exactly. And as ever, there's nobody here. <laughs> so, Rao, I know that uh, there's a lot going on in crypto, but what is happening right now? outside of the crypto space, on the macro side, on the capital market side, that has you intrigued? Yeah, I think the main narrative that's out there right now is the one of inflation. Obviously, all economic data we can kind of throw out the window right now because it's year-on-year -year comparisons. And this time last year, the world had closed. So it makes it increasingly difficult for people to figure out what's going on. But I see the market and people struggling with the inflation risks. So... The commodity markets have risen sharply because of supply constraints. Um, and so people are saying, look, you know, therefore inflation is going to be sticky and people are debating whether the Fed are right or not in their transitory idea. My view is I think it is more transitory than people uh, suspect because I think as supply comes online, we're going to start to see some of these commodities ease off in price. Ralph, for people uh, who don't know this narrative, can you just explain what the transitory thesis is out of the Fed? The thesis is coming out of recessions, inflation always looks big because there's a certain amount of pent-up demand. And the year-on-year -year comparisons look strong. And that's pretty common. In fact, I was chatting to Travis uh, from Real Vision about this a couple of days ago. I just put a chart together of, of bond yields after every recession since 1960, every single one has this rise in yields that happens that then reverses without question, 100% of the time. So it's this perfect track record that everybody over-anticipates inflation too fast. And I think the market is doing that. I, it's transitory, meaning it won't last. We have a slightly different setup this time because we have these supply constraints, because some of the world is still not reopening yet, uh, as we've seen, you know, the issues in India and other places, Brazil. So the question is, is does it last or not? And I always go to the bond market first, which I call, you know, the market that speaks the truth, essentially. And the bond market, since about beginning of March, stopped going up in yields while the narrative has continued about inflation. I think that's interesting. I also note that gold probably broke out finally of this downward um, channel that it had been in, which was corrective. And it looks like this week that it broke out. It needs to confirm it. But gold has actually been trading as a deflationary asset, not an inflationary asset. It has been basically following bond yields. So there's a signal point there that I think is interesting. So uh, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at things like copper getting a little more choppy 
Uh, oil has been choppier. Some of the markets have been choppier. So it feels to me that this narrative is has run its length um, for, for the time being. Um, also, I look at the City Economic Surprises Index. So Citibank puts together this index, and it looks at are, it, um, does the data come out higher or lower than the forecast of all the uh, economists to figure out are people over or underestimating economic growth or weakness? And back in, uh, um, let's say, September, they were at peak um, underestimating the economy. So this was that largest ever peak in this global, um, in this uh, City Economic Surprises Index, because every economist was dead wrong, basically, is what it's saying. But now it's come back to pretty close to zero. It's at 4.4. And if it crosses zero, it's going to suggest that the economic data is going to come out less than the market expects. Um, that's very typical. It's very cyclical. It's like a nice sine wave. Um, so people overestimate, then underestimate. And again, that just gives me another sensation that this narrative is going to change and people aren't going to be shocked by strong economic data. They may get surprised that the data is not great. Now, that's not to say the data is going to roll over hard. But I think what we're doing is transitioning ourselves from the flood of inflationary growth fears that come at this phase, and we will transition to a, um, a period where maybe inflation doesn't go up as much. Um, and growth doesn't um, look as strong as people first imagined. Again, super typical after a recession. People forget this. Um, if that's the case, we'll see bond yields fall um, significantly. It's not really a trade for me because uh, you know bond yields are pretty low anyway still. But you know that that may start to build momentum in the second half of the year. So I think these things take a while to, to change, right? Because we only have one month between one piece of economic data and another. So this is hardly, you know, dynamic action stuff. This is where are we in the business cycle? And the point being, usually the business cycle starts slowing down a bit. Then it's normally followed by stimulus by both the Fed and potentially the government. And that feels like that's how it might well play out. Um, if that's the case, then that helps gold break to new highs. As stimulus comes later in the year, that obviously helps other assets. But this tran transition phase, I think, will catch maybe a few people off guard. Maybe the value growth outperformance trade that's been going on for a while slows mm -hmm. down somewhat because people marked down tech stocks um, from the inflation fears. And if that dampens, then tech stocks might outperform again. So it, we're at a transition phase. I'm not picking it up as a definite. The only thing that's really interesting is, is gold really trying to make a proper break. If it does, then silver looks incredibly interesting as well. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about in, in markets overall. Yeah. Ralph, very well said. And a strong and powerful narrative at a time where it's very difficult uh, to understand from a narrative basis exactly what is happening. Uh, to your point, to put some data points around the challenge uh, of understanding these data points coming out today, uh, we had the uh, personal incomes and outlays indicators uh, come out today, which includes uh, the PCE indicators, which are the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation. Month over month, uh, prices rose 0.5%, uh, which was above consensus. Uh, but when you look at this on a year-over-year -year basis, which gives you the automatic seasonality adjustment, they're up 3.1%. Now, as we were just saying earlier, uh, you know, the world was closed last April. So what validity, what sort of actionable signal can you get from that? Probably not a whole lot. No, but, you know, 
prices are rising of commodities, so we can't discount that. That 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 is going on, and for a number of different reasons. You know, agricultural commodities have got their own supply issues. Um, some of the metals have their own supply issues. Things like copper have supply issues, plus the long-term cycle where nobody's really been finding new copper seams and mining it. And then on top of that, um, you've got this massive secular shift towards um, um, uses of electricity and green energy, which yeah. is incredibly copper intensive. So, you know, you've got multi-narratives all going on at the same time. It's going to take, um, people don't like this, but this is how macro plays out, going to take a year or so before we actually really know what the hell is going on. And the questions that are on my mind are, what is the trend rate of growth now after this recession? So the trend rate of growth has basically fallen every um, post-recession period. So the last period after 2008, trend rate of growth in the United States was the lowest in all recorded history on average. Now, there's peaks and troughs within that. And then prior to 2000, it dropped from a previous level. And it's, it's been dropping for a long time now as the debt burden, this kind of disinflationary wave, um, aging populations, all weigh on, on GDP growth. So I'm not sure where the trend rate of growth is, and my guess is it's lower than imagined. Yeah. I think this is the reason why the size of the fiscal stimulus that keeps getting talked about, these budget deficits that, you know, we, we saw the announcement today about potentially another $6 trillion, um, expenditure from the U.S. government, it's because I think people understand the trend rate of growth has collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. And you have the trend rate of growth rolling over somewhat. And you also have, as you point out, uh, this rise in inflation uh, in, in some of the uh, some base metals uh, and some other uh, core commodities. And yet, you know, the, the number that really seems to matter here is the month over month because the year over year data not telling us anything. No, but month over month, that half a percent increase is quite big for a month. Um, yeah. Particularly as it's above, it's above consensus, and uh, um, you know, and above the, it's an above consensus range. I mean, this is this is material. Yeah, exactly. But as the market is shown by that City Economic Surprises Index, it's already in the price, which is mm -hmm. why bond yields aren't going up, uh, which is why gold is breaking out, and a bunch of other things. So it's in the price. And again, that's something people need to get need to get used to with financial markets is they generally don't react to the headline. If you're reacting to a headline, particularly with economic data, you're the last one to know because everybody else is building economic models, looking at economic trends. So, you know, if you said to me six months ago, well, I think the inflation data in uh, March is going to be in um, May is going to be stronger than expected. I'd be like, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, because everybody knew inflation was coming uh, in the data. So... It's, you need to be very careful and you need to live in the future if you're trying to make gains from it. You don't live in the present. The worst thing to do is look at a high inflation print and think, I want to sell bonds. Because guess what? Bonds rallied today. Yeah. Because Rob, bonds are looking ahead saying, no, 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 we're not that worried about this. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. We're out talking about already in the price S&P closing today uh, at 4,000. 
1.204, less than 1% from the all-time high. So my question to you, and not to take too much of a victory lap here for you, Ralph, but what's happening today, Biden uh, budget proposal out, and many of the points that you've been talking about here uh, over the last weeks and months appear to be coming to pass. Just a couple of data points here uh, from, from a Wall Street Journal article. Corporate tax, rate, tax rates will be increasing uh, to pay for infrastructure. Uh, High-income households will be increasing rates uh, to pay for some of the family spending uh, allowances that are coming from the Biden uh, budget. Here are uh, some really firm data points to look at. This is just the proposal now, not yet passed. Corporate tax rate uh, jumping from 21 to 28 percent under the new Biden proposal, and the top capital gains tax rate exploding from 23.8 to 43.4, an increase of 82 some odd percent under the Biden proposal. These are things you've been talking about for some time, uh, some fiscal headwinds that you've seen in the market, and yet here we are, S&P, less than 1% from all-time highs. What does it mean to you, and how do you sort out the noise and the signal? I don't think it matters to markets. Where else are you going to put your money right now? <laughs> you know, you're getting gains. And if these companies have to pay a bit more taxes, then maybe the pace of change of gain is lower, but what else, where else are you going to put your money? Um, you know, if you're not building a business yourself and doing other things. So um, I don't think it's a market event. Um, I think, um, you know, and in terms of consumption, does taxing richer people change the trajectory of the consumption of the economy? No, but it can move, move money offshore and change, have trade-offs that people don't really want and disencourage people to build businesses in the United States and all of that. The good thing for the United States is everybody's doing the same. So where are you going to go? Uh, you know, the, everyone's talking about this, you know, global base rate of taxation for corporations. But whether we like it or not, there is no other outcome except higher taxes. Because we've had low tax governments and deficits went up. And we've had high tax governments and deficits went up. So somehow something has to change here. And, you know, after COVID and all of the stimulus that's been required and still, I think, needs to be required, there's no other way of paying for it apart from that and then kind of trying to generate some inflation so you can wipe off the debt over time and, you know, the, these kind of other things that we talked about. So it's not a great time for, for people in that respect. Um, you know, a rebalance, a potential rebalance of uh, the rich-poor divide is a painful thing for people who have money and less people and less painful for people who don't. But come on, this is not a surprise because we kind of knew this was coming for a, a long time. Um, and it was very clear what would happen in this election, what would happen afterwards. Let's see what they get through in some of this. But yeah, it's kind of as expected. Yeah. And it's uh, it's sort of the it's the Tina trade, I guess, on the fiscal policy and also on uh, on U.S. equity pricing. Yeah, I mean, what else do you do right now? Um, you know, sure, invest in commodities. That's been a good trade. Um, but equities have remained a pretty good trade. I'm looking across the board here, and you know, most of these equity markets are up between ten and thirty percent. You know, when you come down to sectors, and that's a pretty decent year, let alone the first half of the year. Right. So, you know, it's, they've been generating returns. So, you know, it does feel like we're probably due for another bout of volatility in the equity market. It kind of feels like it's crawled back up to the ceiling here. And maybe that narrative can get upset a little bit. 
and we can see another you know spike up or down. But overall, I don't see anything to change the trend of anything here. Um, you know, I don't, there's no danger, I think, of any double dip recession. There's a danger, clearly, of the market overestimating growth, and I think that's normal at this stage in the cycle. Um, so that could cause a correction. That could cause a bit of, oh, my God, is everything okay kind of feeling. But I just don't get a sense that something is going to derail it. The, many people say, yes, but inflation, bond yields, they'll go through the roof and that will collapse everything. Well, we've been told very clearly, and we have saw it very clearly in the 1940s, is that in a situation like this, the Fed will impose yield curve control, as will everybody else. And that basically means that they will not let rates rise and let real rates go massively negative as growth goes higher and inflation goes higher, if they can generate inflation. So yield curve control, what it actually is by mechanism, is I'm going to take all bonds that you sell me at a fixed price. I'll take as many as you can sell me. As opposed to quantitative easing, which is I'll buy X number of bonds from you at whatever price the market says. Yield curve control is I'm a fixed buyer. I'll buy as many as you want all day, every day. What that actually is, and you saw it again in the 1940s, uh, when they imp implemented yield curve control after World War II and the recovery cycle from that, which is not dissimilar, right? We've just had a very similar GDP drawdown. Um, what happened was the Fed uh, uh, capped yields and um, the balance sheet exploded. Now, that's the other thing. We know what happens when the balance sheet explodes. Equity market goes up. Bitcoin goes up. Gold goes up. So we kind of, it's like a weird world where What's the downside? And I, I've mentioned this a few times, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but what is the downside? What is the downside in the equity market? The equity market sells off 30% today. What happens? The Fed will step up their, their easing. So in which case, the equity market goes back up. So you, you get to a world where you don't have these long, longer recessions where the markets trade off for, let's say, 18 months. What you get is these sharp, vast spikes where the market trades down quickly and then it quickly recovers and we had the mother of all of those last year i mean the market went down for a month like plummeted and then screamed hard like a rocket ever since never looked back and i think there's a structural change here yeah well, uh, talking of Bitcoin, I've managed to restrain myself here for 15 we minutes. We weren't talking of Bitcoin. It was in your head. You were having your inside voice was talking about, let's get to Bitcoin. Let's get to Bitcoin. I think you mentioned it. I was like, I can roll with that. You said, you said the word Bitcoin. It's like, now I'm going to jump on it. Um, so, you know, here we are. Let's just say Bitcoin goes like that. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, so one of the advantages of doing a live show is we can hit these prices live. Uh, Bitcoin right now trading uh, a scotch below 36,000, Ethereum at uh, 2,500. Um, you know, look, let's not sugarcoat it. Bitcoin down about 37% uh, in the month of May. Uh, if you look at the Coindesk data, some of these, uh, when there's volatility, especially you see these, uh, the data vary a bit between exchanges, between reporting mechanisms. Uh, what are your thoughts, big picture, on where we are right now? Well, I mean, I did the whole daily briefing, feels like a month ago, but I think it was Monday, um, <laughs> about this. And my view is corrections in crypto are expected. And I've told everybody from day one that you need to be able to expect at least a 50% correction 
in the middle of a bull market. And we've had pretty close to that. Ethereum has been pretty close. Many of the alts have been uh, larger corrections than that. So it's expected. It's normal. Within the logarithmic trend, you get these things, but they don't do a lot of damage to the chart overall because the logarithmic trend holds true. Um, so I don't have any issue per se with the volatility. The key of crypto markets is buy and hold and don't use leverage. If you're doing anything else, you're exposing yourself to extremely extreme volatility that's hard to deal with. If you buy and hold it, you just sit and, sit and wait and you use these moments to accumulate. So I put a piece out for macro insiders, for global macro investor, and put a piece on Real Vision's daily briefing just to say, listen, you should be accumulating in these kind of sell-offs. Nothing has structurally changed. Yes, there's a bit of a fight going on with the Chinese miners. And I think the outcome, there's a number of different cross currents going on there. But mainly, I think it's to reduce the coal consumption of the Bitcoin miners who are using coal. Those are the least regulated of all. Um, so I think that is part of the narrative. And, and the Chinese are getting themselves set up properly for their, for their central bank digital currency to make sure that... Um, that the on-ramps and off-ramps are all right and that kind of stuff and regulations in place. So, yes, there's been selling from these miners as people have been shut down or people don't know where they are. They haven't got clarification with the Chinese government. There's been the narratives and all the kind of Elon Musk sagas and then other sagas going on. This market price action, to me, feels like it's the fear of the weekend is now upon us because we had two awful weekends the last two weekends. And I was like, oh my God, what are they going to do to us? What's China going to announce overnight? Are they going to burn Bitcoiners at the stake? So that's what's going on, I think. Now, uh, I think that these kind of moves require time for the market to digest. There's overhang. There's a kind of general uncertainty. But from my conversations I've had this week, it sounds like there's a lot of institutional money about to come back in again. As I've talked about that feature, there was less institutional money for a while, but I've heard that there's a lot coming. So I think that soon we will have a trend change back up again. Um, if I look at the Bitcoin chart, could it make a new low and then bounce? Possibly. Um, but it's starting to get to the weekly nine count on DMARC, which is one of the, my favorite technical studies that uh, from Tom DeMarc. And I, I was even chatting to Tom this week, and he's like, yeah, it could have another new low, but then we start setting up for this weekly. If we had a new low, we'd set up for a daily low and a weekly low, which is an extraordinarily strong, strong signal in that kind of charting technique. Right. You know, Ralph, so much there. First, we should say, as you and I have both said uh, many times, of course, not financial advice, particularly for retail investors. Uh, you need to understand uh, your own risk tolerance. Talk to a financial professional before you dive into these uh, markets or any big question. Who is your financial professional and what makes them more professional than you and I talking? Considering we've both been in financial markets for 20 years plus. You know, it's it's kind of crazy um, how people deal with this these days. It feels antiquated. Well, you know, the interesting thing about it is I think that if you think about what we do here, very different from what someone who's going to do, uh, who's going to look at an individual's uh, risk tolerance, their objectives, life events, those kinds of things, uh, important that people understand their own risks rather than the market analysis that you and I do uh, and others on Real Vision so often. Yes, it is. But that kind of life and where you are is basically really your whole investment framework and how much you need yeah. to save and invest. For people who have got money that they want to trade or invest their own way, self-directed, yeah, they should know what their risks are. 
people should understand, okay, I'm doing this myself, and I'm going to lose a ton of money, and hopefully I'll make money over time when I learn. And that should be encouraged. I think we've swung the pendulum. Well, it's actually moving back. We've swung the pendulum so far. Just trust this guy on Wall Street because he's your expert to, oh, my God, I don't trust anybody anymore. <laughs> and then we've seen um, the rise of the millennial uh, um, cohort of people starting to discover trading themselves. And fascinating. I don't know if you go to Wall Street bets and read some of this stuff. The basic thing is YOLO. It is, I know I'm going to lose my money. It's a hilarious game. But if I get it right, I'll make a ton of money. It's like supreme risk-seeking. We, see, we often see a lot of that in Asia, too, where, we, for example, we see a lot of the, the cryptocurrency leverage trading. Uh, it's a new way. And it's okay as long as you know your risk. If you know your risk is, I'm going to lose all of this pot that I've just saved, go for it. If it is, I'm going to do it on leverage and I'm going to lose my future and end up in prison, maybe don't do that. You know, it's, it's, a set, it's, it's figuring out how to do it sensibly, but you can still get the most out of it. Well, Raul, to exactly that point, talk a little bit more about how you think about that in your own life. Uh, just provide a little bit of context, because I know that you have some uh, very sophisticated thinking that you do, uh, that you say very casually, but give us a little bit of a context for how you do that in your own life. Well, I've talked about how I approach the Bitcoin thing. You know, so yeah. I said to everybody, I'm irresponsibly long. And everyone's like, oh my God, what does that mean? It meant that I had decided that this was the single best opportunity I'd ever seen in my entire career. And that I wanted to take maximum advantage of it. So first rule of thumb was, okay, what can I lose? Mm. I can probably lose 50 or 60%. And considering that was pre this period, because now it's all gone up. 50 or 60% of what I put up. What could I make? I figured I could probably make 20x. Mm. So that's a 40 for one risk reward. I thought, okay, that's the best you're ever going to see of something like this. So then it's like, okay, how much am I going to risk? Well, I'm going to put all of my actual savings in it. Now, why? Because actually most of my savings are in my houses, a real vision shares, and I have income streams. So I can repair my balance sheet pretty quickly. So I didn't, and then I didn't, I won't use leverage. I do right. use leverage in trading sometimes myself, but not with something this volatile where the risk reward is so massive and the poten potential expected return is so big. You don't need volatility. You don't need leverage to make even more money. That's just stupid. So, so that's how I approached it. And, um, you know, different markets, if it's a bond market trade, which is very low volatility, I might take leverage uh, by using futures or options. With, with options, I'm defining what I can lose. Right. Um, and with futures, okay, that's a bit racier. So you have to use stop losses to say, how much, can I, how much am I prepared to lose of my capital on this particular trade? And with leverage bets, you tend to try and not put massive bets on. Occasionally, a few times in a lifetime, the bond trade, uh, about a year and a half ago, was worth putting some big leverage into and taking a lot of risk. But they only come across occasionally. People are too eager to put leverage on and take the big bet. When really, if you heard me speaking today, I'm not getting excited about anything. So why would I, if there's no big, massive thesis that mm -hmm. you really understand the situation, you understand your risk rewards, and you're, you're prepared to take some real risk, why bother? You know? 
that's so I I'm just I caution people because I see people overtrade all the time. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Right. So, so interesting. So, basically, you're saying 100% of your YOLO fund uh, is in crypto, but how do you size that relative to your other assets uh, when you think of it more broadly? It was all the cash I had. So, that's how I sized it. Yes. But, Raul, you have every single penny that I had in cash. But you have considerable assets other than cash in your I'm not going to mortgage my house because that would be stupid because I don't mind losing money, but losing my home is idiotic because I've worked a lot and very, you know, a lot of long hours and many years to own it. So the last thing I want to do is hand the keys over to somebody else because I was trading Bitcoin. No, no, no. Everything's lifestyle and what you're trying to accumulate, not about the numbers on the spreadsheet. Well, if you ever do decide to give up that home, I'm happy to take the keys off your hands. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm never going to borrow money from you. <laughs> I'm looking out the window at this miserable rain in NYC. Not a pleasant place to be right now. Um, one final point on crypto. Uh, and uh, people who watch this show know I don't usually shill my own content. Uh, but we did a show uh, with Anders Braunworth uh, here on Real Vision. That's something unlike we've ever done before, and it's getting a tremendous response. Effectively, what we've done is we've done a video screencast with Anders Braunworth. Anders is uh, the principal software architect at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, although he's appearing in a personal capacity. This is a personal project he's working on, not an official project uh, with the Fed. Uh, Anders is a really interesting guy. He was the first person in the United States to teach a class on blockchain. He taught it at MIT, I think, as early as 2014. Uh, And he said to me, at the end of that class, I had a really hard time feeling like I conveyed all the information I needed to convey uh, to the MIT students. So he built this blockchain demo, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. Effectively, it shows you how blockchain works visually, step-by-step. You can actually see the process uh, moving through the feed. It's it's just incredible. It's totally mind-blowing. I saw it for the first time, I think, in like 2017 uh, and it's got over like a million, the original version has over a million views on YouTube. I watched it like 15 times over a period of weeks to understand what he was talking about. But once you see this piece, there are very few pieces uh, I can really say once you see it, it just blockchain what it is, the promise, the technology, it really clicks. Have you seen this yet, Ralph? No, I haven't. I've, I skipped through it because you mentioned how amazing it was and it looked incredible. But, I, you know, again, I want to sit and watch it with a clear head and, and go through it in detail. But it, I, I just love the way it was all done as well. You know, just the, it was the live demo and and uh, yeah, the, the screens and stuff. It was really cool. It looked really unique, and the the reaction from everybody at Real Vision has been mate. You know, of the audience has been great. They loved yeah. it. Amazing, amazing. And hat tip to uh, Kevin O'Dowd, our creative director, for figuring out uh, how to realize that vision. Okay, Raul, the questions are streaming in. Let's uh, do it. And uh, by the way, I didn't plant this one. First question, Tom V. Uh, Raul, what do you expect? What's your outlook for crypto in the coming months? Uh, and then the second question from Tom uh, is, will institutional money flow more into gold? So two of uh, the themes we've been discussing. Um, crypto, my view is that it's basing and will base over the next week or two, whether it's put in, it's low or whether there's a new low to come, I don't know. Um, and 
you know, I think it's an accumulation phase and a good opportunity to add to trades if you're so orientated. Um, and so I think it goes higher. Um, the institutions in crypto are still coming, and that's an ongoing thing. So um, I don't have any issue about the supply and demand dynamics. We've had a lot of excess supply right now from these miners and others. Uh, in terms of gold institutions, I haven't seen a lot of extra allocation. They might be at the margin. They tend to be slightly FOMO-y as well. So if gold's going up, they'll go in. But gold has never been a large part of most asset allocators' portfolios. It tends to be in stuff like um, endowments, um, which have much longer time horizons because it, it protects the value of money over time. Um, but even pension funds haven't really used gold a great deal. I'm sure there'll be some more increase in demand. I'm sure gold goes up over time. So I have no concerns over gold. I've just not been in gold for a while because I got bored out of it for a while. And crypto was just, you know, a, a massive outperformer. That, that's been correcting for, you know, this last few weeks, which has been, uh, which has been needed because crypto moved massively versus gold and gold has a place to play. Yeah. Well, I'm doing a lot of scrolling on my screen to try and find a question that doesn't involve crypto. Uh, so uh, I'm going to settle on this one as a compromise. This comes to us from Hugh Meyer. Uh, is it possible Bitcoin is signaling more of a risk off trade for macro with equities where they lie, economic data coming in extremely strong, set up for a larger pullback, especially in tech? So risk off from macro as a signal from Bitcoin. I'm not a big believer that Bitcoin has a real correlation to the macro cycle in, in shorter term moves. And by short term, I mean, you know, one month to six months. I think it's related to the expansion of the federal, uh, central bank balance sheets and other factors. I don't think it's correlated. Does it mean that, you know, could tech sell off? Yeah, but it's been pretty choppy and the racier tech uh, sold off hard. So, you know, the, the Kathy Wood part of the cycle has sold off really hard and everything else has been super choppy. So I think that's been playing out already. But could we get another risk off? Possibly. Possibly. As I said, the S&P feel like it's kind of crawled to its highs. And usually when you've got that kind of shrinking volatility, that kind of structure, you've got a risk of another event, but nothing major. Nothing that I'd want to trade either way. Uh, here's one that comes to us from uh, Prius Omega, one of our regular viewers here on The Daily Briefing. Uh, how is gold a deflationary trade? I get the correlation with yields, but I can't square the narrative. It's beautiful. It's so simple. So, Ash, what did the Fed... I'm going to ask you the question, Ash. Ash, what will the Federal Reserve do if deflation comes? Um, if, I mean, my guess is probably nothing. The Fed wouldn't wouldn't stimulate if they saw deflation. Oh, come. Oh, oh, in a deflationary environment, I think they'd probably can do whatever it took. So sorry, then, I, I, I understood your question backwards. So yeah, then, no, I mean they would do whatever they need to do. So then, what does that do to the value of money? It presumably oh. devalues the dollar, and so therefore gold would presumably rise. And that's as simple as that. And it trades just like that. Yeah. is it trades like a asset that is a fixed pricing mechanism of the value of fiat money. Yeah. And every time you think about devaluing fiat money, guess what? Gold goes up. So it's trading on the probabilities of that kind of environment. Got it. The other thing that can move gold is a sell-off in the dollar itself, which is different to the value of the kind of intrinsic fiat value of the dollar. 
the, uh, the dollar itself can also drive gold. So if the dollar falls, then gold will go higher. If the value of the dollar is being eroded by debasement, gold goes higher. Yeah. By the way, the three-word answer to the question, if I had to take it again, it would be anything and everything. Exactly. And so you now know that every time there's a recession, they're going to debase the currency. And guess what? The equity market goes higher, the gold market goes higher, and the crypto market goes higher. It's like, but that's kind of an illusion, as we've talked about. Because if you look at the markets in terms of their balance sheets and stuff, they're actually not going higher. So it's careful. It's, it's all about this 15% hurdle rate from them printing 15% a year, essentially, on average. Yeah. Uh, and what, let me ask you this as a follow-up. What do you think about the impact on M2 there? I don't know whether it's M2. I think M2 is a confusing picture because of velocity. Yeah. Um, I, so, so everybody knows what we're talking about is money supply. There's a lot of money sloshing around. The problem is there can be a lot of money sloshing around, but if Ash wants to hoard it and I'm the bank and I don't want to lend it out, then it doesn't go anywhere. And, um, and that creates a drop in velocity of money. The central bank balance sheet is a different thing. It's a different beast. It's not just M2 that causes it. Um, that balance sheet really is a devaluation of, of money. Because yeah. they basically, it's the money printer go burr. And I kind of always thought that that narrative was wrong because it doesn't go flow through the banking system in the same way. And then I realized it was nothing to do about of, of that money flowing through the banking system and people buying equities on leverage. If you look at equity markets, volumes over time, particularly during periods of QE, they're not rising. It's not like everybody's buying equities. They're revaluing equities subconsciously. Um, and it happens, it's very consistent across all asset prices, the denominator effect, as I've talked about a lot. You know, is that, that, if anybody's more interested in this, uh, hasn't watched my exponential age video, it's all yeah. explained in great detail there. Yeah. And by the way, as you were speaking, I looked up the velocity uh, of M2 money stock on the Fed Fred database. Uh, it just continues to roll over despite the recovery. We're now down to the last print is uh, one spot, one, two, two. I mean, this is this is pretty extraordinary. You look at the twenty-year chart on this from uh, from the year two thousand to uh, to now. It's just a straight roll down. Yeah, and the best thing is, it's pretty predictable. Um, it's to do with uh, demographics. Um, what happens, Raoul, when that gets close to one? Well, elsewhere in the world, it's gone to zero. But what happens in the U.S.? I mean, what are the risks? It's just inflation doesn't pick up. You know, it's just money is bifurcated. I haven't used that word in a long time. Bifurcated <laughs> to banks and, uh, and others that get access to it and the others who want to hoard it or can't get access to it. Right. Um, I think it's, it's an ongoing phenomena, but Europe's got, you know, M2 below one. In fact, every major country in the world now has M2 below one except the US. Yeah, and, and this gets back to your question about deflation. Well, it's also to do with demographics. The U.S. is slightly marginally younger a population. And if you population adjust them, if you look at Japanese uh, velocity of money or any of these others, I've done this work in GMI, it's all a consistent picture. It's to do with aging populations. Yeah. And obviously the difference between U.S. and Japan, one of the principal ones, of course, is immigration, which is, uh, continues to keep the uh, average age lower here than elsewhere in the world. Uh, yes. 
Um, absolutely. But, you know, you know, a lot of other countries have you know, reasonable rates of immigration, but the, the core population density, because the US had a larger millennial boom than any other country, it's kept the, uh, the, the numbers slightly different. But it's the age of the boomers that's the issue. The boomers have all the wealth. When they get to retirement, they slowly eke it out of their savings because they don't know how long they're going to live for. And that collapses money. Uh, that collapses velocity of money. They're hoarders at that point of capital because they have to. Yeah. Here's a very technical question uh, from Maximus Torres for you, Rao. Uh, do you have any explanation for why we hit a record uh, on reverse repo ops yesterday? Is this a sign of excess liquidity? Yeah, it is a sign of excess liquidity that's unusable because of bank regulation. So basically, there's, there's, there's money in the system that the banks can't do anything with. And this is all related to the messiness of the plumbing that's been caused by endless tweaks to regulation and capital and everything else. I don't think it's meaningful. Yeah. I think it's a technical function of what's going on and not some impending harbinger of doom. Um, sometimes the money markets can be the harbinger of doom, but it doesn't feel like that's the time right now. Yeah. Uh, speaking of technical, I know we have a, a hard stop here at five for technical reasons. Uh, I just want to get one last question in uh, from Tom. Tom, another one of our regular viewers here. Uh, Rao, can you talk more about this six uh, trillion dollar Biden proposal uh, and the more trillions coming over the years and what impact it will have on bonds, gold, and crypto specifically? So, expect a lot more stimulus than we have seen outside of that post-World War II period coming globally. Um, it'll come in good times and bad times as governments try to restructure their economies away from the mess that we're in. If you remember the 1940s, they didn't allow bond yields to rise. They will not allow it to rise again. Just simply not, full stop, end of, underscored. What level is that? Is it 2.5% in 10-year bond yields? Is it 2%? I have no idea. In Japan, it's 20 basis points. So, no, they won't let bond yields go over 20 basis points. So, or would I, I think that's the number currently. So, there you go. So, bond yields don't go up. We expect more stimulus. The big question is, is, is this inflationary? Does it erode the value of our money? And we don't know. Fiscal, it's not always inflationary. And again, post-1930s, inflation didn't last very long. A few years after the start of the New Deal, then inflation started tapering off. So I'm not a big believer that it is inflationary. In fact, I think the problems of the debt super cycle will remain with us. I, we won't inflate them away. And the debt grows faster than the um, rate of inflation. So I don't think this goes away for a while. Um, and so the impact um, on gold, undetermined, don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's not clear that these fiscal have much other impact. It's great because there's giving us some secular trends like ESG, like the E side of that equation is a absolute no-brainer to invest in because every single major government on earth is driving green initiatives and they're throwing capital at it. So if yeah. somebody's going to throw capital at me, I'm going to take that and um, you know either choose to build a business around it or invest in things that benefit from it. Of course, why not? Yeah.
one of the we, uh, uh, few places, uh, perhaps on a technology or investing perspective, where the U.S. Uh, seems to be behind the curve. I actually have a conversation with Weston Nakamura coming out on the exchange uh, next week about ESG. Uh, Raul, as we come to the end here, we've got about two minutes left. You've actually already begun to give us the big picture perspective in your last remarks. Uh, what are the final takeaways you'd like to leave the viewers with here today? Um, I, there's, there's not a lot going on. Don't get married to the view on inflation would be my fear, but that I'm going to be saying this for another few weeks because economic data comes out monthly and some comes out weekly and we're not going to get clean data. So it's going to be very difficult because when I talk about things, I'm actually having to live in the economic data in six months time because that's kind of a bit more forecastable. So I don't really know. It's just, I think it's, it's business as usual right now. Crypto, I mean, crypto's having another hell of an evening already and it's barely started. Everyone's terrified of the weekend. Ethereum's down like 10, 11% on nothing. Um, so just be careful out there. Um, and remember, if you can buy the dips, buy the dips. If not, just um, try not to look at the prices too much. You're in it for the long haul. And, you know, the path between here and there can be like that. And you just don't know the path. The future end state is more predictable. Yeah, moving toward 35000 on the Bitcoin price here uh, as we wrap up. This may be the worst time to do a show, 4 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. This is like the peak fear of weekend hour. Well, this is only a new phenomenon, so, so it's kind of fun. Two we weeks. Can, we can end with dramatic music. Dun, 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 to be continued. And can we'll we say what an acronym for it? Fear of Weekend? What is that? F-O-W-E or something? <laughs> exactly. A FOWE. A FOWE. Yes, it is. It's the fear of weekend. Let's see. Chi let's see what headlines China throws at us this weekend, or Elon Musk, or other random person. Well, Rob, we don't fear the weekend. We're going to be going out and having fun. I know I am. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. Yes, yeah, sadly, my weekend is sitting in front of this computer writing Global Macro Investor. But it's Friday night, so I will have a cocktail. Excellent. Thank you very much. And thanks for watching, everyone. And thank you for your questions and your participation. Yeah, take care, everyone. Have a fantastic weekend. And thanks, as always, as Ash said, for posting questions and getting involved. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.